G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Sometimes we've got to take a good hard look at how Jesus wants us to live. That's where the rubber hits the road right there. Today with Jeff Vines. Hi and welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. We continue today looking at Matthew chapter 5 and being salt and light. Pastor Jeff is encouraging us to make a difference in our world, just like salt can preserve and light can bring life. We're partway through this message, so let's pick up where we left off last time with Pastor Jeff on Today with Jeff Vines. Now, if you're a visitor, here's what you're thinking right now. Oh my goodness. This is the most pessimistic pastor and pessimistic church I've ever been a part of. No, no. See, the thing about the Christian is he believes in the ideal, but he acknowledges the real. At least the believer does that. We're, we're honest about where things are headed. We can see it. But a Christian cannot be an optimist where the world is concerned. He can't because he knows the real is that it's moving toward disintegration. He can't just put his head in the sand and think everything's going to get better next year, where the world is concerned. But he can't be a pessimist because he knows the transformational power of God in you means that you can become the salt of the earth and preserve the good and bring life into where there is death. So number one, Jesus assumes Christ's followers understand the world's disintegrating. Number two, Jesus assumes Christ's followers can and will penetrate the culture and preserve what is good. Now, before I move on, let's think just a few minutes about what Jesus is saying here and why he uses this metaphor. Because salt is an important imagery. Why is he using salt? I mean, salt had a much more central role in Jesus' day. Now, I'm going to play a game with you. If you know the answer to this question, I'm going to encourage you to shout it out. Now, be careful. You don't want to embarrass yourself around your friends and family. Would you like to take a guess in America... Over 50% of all salt is used to do what? No, not in food. Not preserve. Over 50% of all salt in America is used to de-ice roads. You're not going to get that in Southern California. You've got no clue what I'm talking about. Now, that wasn't so in Jesus' day. You know why? Jesus did not come to a place where the, uh, the, the roads were filled with ice and snow because he knew it was not God's will that men and women should live in such places. <laughs> they were meant to be isolated places, not inhabited, but 8% of all salt, only 8% of all salt is actually used for table salt. 
in America. In the ancient world, it's a very different story. People discovered that there was something interesting about salt, that it was able to keep or slow down or arrest decay and corruption. We've said that. It was able to preserve food for times of famine, so salt became a life or death situation in Jesus' day. It was highly prized. Most of the ancient cities in Italy were built, including Rome, on salt rocks. The Romans used salt, and the reason we're talking about the Romans, they were the popular force in Jesus' day, as payment to workers. In other words, when you went to pick up your money, you didn't pick up a paycheck, you didn't pick up cash or coinage, you picked up salt. The Latin word for salt is sol, from which we get our English word salary. It's where we get our meaning of the phrase he's worth or she's worth his or her salt. Mark Kalansky wrote a New York Times bestseller called Salt, A History of the World, and he indicates that salt was one of the most common factors that provoked and financed wars. That people fought over salt like you and I fight over oil or diamonds or gold. That's why when one country gets attacked by another country, we say they've been assaulted. Okay, I just made that up. But I had you. I had you. I saw the look in your eyes. You believe me. You did believe me. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. We did our little salt homework. Jesus is saying that followers of Christ, his followers, are precious, are valued, are treasured, are highly prized, that they're the most valuable thing on the planet. They're the hope of the world because they have the power to stifle the decay and corruption in the world and it's been his plan from the beginning. And the third thing, if you're following in your bulletin then, is that Jesus assumes that Christ's followers will not exist for their own sake. When's the last time you said, man, I am starving, so hungry, I think I'll go home and eat a bowl of salt. (laughs) No, because salt's calling is to lose itself to something bigger and more glorious than itself. Now take a deep breath, everybody. Let me bring this into our lives here. I want you just to think about as I read these power stories, as we use some illustration here to kind of bring this home. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, writes about a man by the name of Ernest Gordon. He's a British Army officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. He's placed in a large labor camp, very large, and they are commissioned to build a railway through the most difficult uh, jungle in Thailand. And the work conditions are unbelievably poor. Uh, Some of this is based on the facts of the movie Bridge Over River Kwai, which some of you have read or seen. The prisoners had to work in 120 degree heat every day. Their bodies were stung by insects, ravaged by disease. Their feet were cut on the stones or bare. It was a horrific picture of suffering. And if a prisoner appeared to be slacking off, a guard then would take and beat him to death or decapitate him in front of the other prisoners. Otherwise, they'd be worked until they got too too ill, too sick to work, too weak. And then at that point, they would be placed in a shack called the death house where they would be laid out and roast until they die, basically. The conditions were so brutal, writes Yancey, 80,000 men died building this railway, 393 corpses per mile of track. Now, the prisoners who did survive lived like animals. The strong would beat the weak for just a few grains of rice. Theft was commonplace. The only thing that kept this place going was hate, just hate and survival until one day, One man. The story goes that a work detail had just been completed. And the guard noticed that a shovel was missing, or at least he was told that. 
He demanded to know instantly who stole it. No one confessed, so he screamed that the whole work detail would be shot at point-blank range, would be killed until the shovel appears. Finally, an enlisted man stood up and said, I did it. I, I took the shovel. I stole it. At which point, the soldier beat him to death with the butt end of his rifle and continued to beat the dead corpse for a half an hour. So the story goes. That evening, when the tools were inventoried again, they discovered that they had made a mistake. A shovel had not been missing. And that did something to the camp. True story. The men came back in the tent. Suddenly, someone began to read out of John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. And that one event changed the entire camp. Prisoners began treating each other with respect, especially those who were dying. They started giving them funerals and marking their graves with crosses. And people who were strong began to help and give their food to the weak. Ernest Gordon himself had been paralyzed with fever and was laid out in the death shack to die. He had written his final letter to his parents just waiting to die. And then some of the men in the camp went in at night, pulled him out, gave him their food, massaged his leg muscles, cleaned his latrine. He started to think about God for the first time. That happens when you're shown compassion. And they actually formed a little church in the camp as thousands were dying. Ernest Gordon actually became the unofficial pastor. They went on to plant a garden to grow medicinal plants to try to help those who were suffering. They started a university called the Jungle University. And they started teaching in philosophy and history and science and nine languages, including Latin and Russian. In effect, what happened in that camp because of the one man? They created an alternative culture to the culture of death. They brought life where there was death. Life into a culture of death. Jesus had a name for that. He called it the kingdom of God. And it is raised up in the most precarious and unlikely places. These men became so transformed that when the liberating armies came to rescue them, they did not hate the guards. They treated them with kindness, mercy, respect, and forgiveness. And Gordon's own life was turned upside down that he became a pastor after it was all said and done. And he talks about how this one man's life, this one man who brought life into the death camps, and the domino effect began where life began to permeate in a place of death, and Gordon refers to him constantly as the salt of the earth. We want to be more than a place where people come in and sing their songs and pray and hear a sermon. We don't want to be people who are segmentable. We're different here than we are when we go out there. We want to be the salt of the world. We want to preserve what is good. We want to bring the ideal into the real and therefore achieve the calling God has on our life. Notice, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you're becoming the salt of the earth. He, he doesn't say you might be the salt. He says you are the salt of the earth, which means you have it in you. You just got to open the packet. Even the New York Times folks, they're impressed when someone's the salt of the earth. I want to introduce you to Kevin Jordan, a great story. A promising athlete in the sport of baseball received a full scholarship to Wake Forest University originally from Columbus, Georgia. Before he even entered his freshman year of college, professional scouts had their eye on him. Incredible speed, endurance, a cannon for an arm, lightning bolt for a bat. And there's something you need to know about his coach at Wake Forest, Tom Walter. He's got a reputation. He loves to win, but he has a greater reputation for loving his kids more. 
And he stresses the importance of education and to go beyond the call of duty for his players. He's proven that because he was the, actually the baseball coach at the University of New Orleans when Katrina hit. And even though his house was under 12 feet of water, he still took the time to focus on his own players. He helped each of them move to the new campus at New Mexico State, and he offered assistance to anyone who wanted to transfer out. That young player, Kevin Jordan, according to the article, began losing his speed. The rocket arm was unparalleled, was no longer the rocket arm. He was weak, frail, his bat lost its pop, he lost his pizzazz. After tests and more tests and more tests, they discovered that his kidneys were failing. And so without a transplant, it was going to be eight hours a day of dialysis just to survive. Unfortunately, not even one of his family members were a match, not one. And Coach Walter said he could not stand the fact of a young man sitting in the dorm room, eight hours a day on dialysis, coming out what's left, trying to practice baseball. He's getting weaker and weaker and trying to do his studies. So he went to Kevin and he offered Kevin his kidney. And it was a match. Coach said it wasn't about getting Jordan back as a player, but just giving the kid a chance at life and to be a college freshman. Keith Jordan, Kevin's father, talks about how difficult it was seeing all this tragedy with his son. He said it barely registered with him when the Yankees informed him that they had selected his son 19th in the amateur draft. He said, how can I think about professional baseball for my son? We're fighting for his life. The story ends so well and it's so powerful as the New York Times records that the kidney took well. And here we are a year later and Jordan's speed and agility and endurance and power, they're all back and the doctors say he's going to live a normal and long life. The story resonated across the U.S. to such a degree that it pulled up an old story from 2007 where Everson Walls, the old Dallas cowboy, had given his kidney to ex-teammate Ron Springs. And when Walls heard about what happened, I love the way he puts it. He said, what impressed me about this story is that unlike me and my teammate, Coach Walter and player Jordan were members of a different age and racial group. Now you'll find it interesting to know that someone has inevitably raised the question of whether Wake Forest violated NCAA rules by providing an extra benefit to an athlete defined as a special arrangement not made available to other university students. Would you like to know Coach Walter's response? I answer to a higher calling on this one. Jordan's own response was this. He said, I'm definitely going to play hard for coach. I can't say no to him. I've got his body part in me. <laughs> and Kevin's father says it like this. It's like divine intervention. When you look at everything that happened and how we even got to Wake Forest and then to meet a coach like Coach Walter and look at some of the things he had been through and done. And then now to do this, you can't express it in words. But what I'm trying to say is Jesus did express it in words. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You can bring the ideal into the real. You can bring life where there is death. You can bring restoration to disintegration. Now, both of these examples... Don't, don't misunderstand. It's not only in the physical. That's why we went through all those examples earlier in the sermon. You don't only bring salt and light to someone that you help heal physically. As a matter of fact, that's down the list on priorities where Jesus is concerned. You can be a great encourager to those who are struggling at your workplace. You can bring emotional life into people who are dead inside. You're the salt of the earth. You preserve what is good. You bring life where there is death. You can bring a kind of purity to the office place, into a world of decay. You can encourage people by your honesty, 
By your integrity, by your character, by your love, by your peace, by your joy. And you don't do it by blasting people and carrying signs you're going to hell because you're mean. You do it by living a life that exudes with the fruits of the Spirit. And in that way, you penetrate the culture. Look, when you walk into a room, you should expose the sin of greed just because of who you are. Incredible generosity and everybody knows it. You don't have to say a thing, man, a thing. You just live the life that permeates the culture. The Christian has the capacity to stifle deterioration in the relational arena. By the way, you forgive people who offend you and they see it. The way you're faithful in your marriage and don't even court being unfaithful. By when you walk into a room and you're a man or a woman like that, people take notice. You become the light of the world. You expose the darkness. You expose what is bad. In the social arena, by the fact that you're a peacemaker at work when people are talking about the boss, when they're so negative and pessimistic, you bring the ideal into the real by being positive, by believing in the sovereign God, by being a peacemaker when there is war. And in the psychological arena, by the way, you speak words of encouragement. By the way, you go up to somebody at the office when no one's around who's struggling and you say, look, I'm a Christian. I don't want to offend you, but can I pray for you tonight? I'll be praying. Just tell me what I can pray for. That is such a powerful tool of evangelism. <laughs> and folks, you don't have to go to Wake Forest and you don't have to go into the jungles of Thailand. You can just start right here. I want to introduce you to the last person, Stacy Young. She works in our Kaleidoscope program. She's amazing. She volunteers her time at the local school every day almost. She directs and produces the productions for at-risk kids and others. I mean, she does it all. We have a whole team do what you see around here. She does the costumes and the staging and the lighting and the props and the sets and the lot. Underfunded, under-resourced schools in our Kaleidoscope program. She goes into these, these elementary and junior high schools and she comes up with these fantastic plays and productions. 25 children in each play is the average. They have no acting experience, no formal performances under their belts. And as you know, sometimes at-risk kids are difficult to work with. We have no idea what's going on in their little heads, the death and the life issues. Some are incredibly shy. So much is going on, but Stacy goes in there with her time and effort and her incredible patience and works a miracle. Jen Hicks, her supervisor, says she has taken the shyest, most insecure kid or child and turn them into an actor. And on the day of the play, you'll often see teachers and parents and other students that are so amazed by the transformation in these little child, in these little children, in their lives, they'll just start to weep right there. Just start to cry at the miracle that's happening in front of them. Stacy does have a great team, but she's become a great leader. And week in and week out, she pulls up to Kaleidoscope with the biggest smile on her face, and I do mean pulls up because she does all of this from a wheelchair. Jen Hicks says, she's the most Christ-like person I know, and it is an absolute blessing to marvel from the sidelines as she proclaims the kingdom of heaven to a ragtag group of adoring children every week. Stacy's the salt of the earth, man. When you came in, you were given a little packet of salt. Here's what I want you to do with it this week. You know, every message that we deliver can't be about how God will be with us in difficult times. I know you enjoyed the Jonah series, seeing how God will work in your life. 
But sometimes we gotta take a good hard look at how Jesus wants us to live. That's where the rubber hits the road right there. That's where we know if you're into segmentism or if you're into transformation by the Spirit of God as you live your life out there. This week, you're going to go out to eat sometime, or you're going to be eating at home, and you're going to have some food in front of you, and it's, it's going to taste a lot better if you add a little salt, especially if it's vegetables. <laughs> and I'm going to challenge you to taste it beforehand, and then add a little salt. Now, be careful. Like, don't put this in your coffee. The effect just won't happen. <laughs> put a little salt and taste it, and think about the flavor, and think about the enhancement that just happened. And then I want you to pray. Ask God to show you that, that place, that circle of influence that he wants you to penetrate and to preserve the good and to stifle decay and corruption and to illuminate the ideal that it might become the real in your little place at work and your little place at the golf club or your little place, I don't know, at the coffee house, wherever it is. And so you too would become the salt of the earth. And ask him what it is you're supposed to be. Ask him to give you something that you could give yourself away to something bigger than yourself. In some arena. Okay? And I think that would be pleasing, pleasing to Christ. Father, we are indeed grateful for the power of your word. We're thankful that we have the capacity in us. If we'll just stop, take a deep breath, if we'll just get out of the packet to permeate this culture, to preserve all that is good, all that is right and holy, and Father, if we don't have the passion to permeate our culture, we even pray that you would give us that. We want it so desperately. Give it to us. And I pray that there would be so much serious introspection right now that all of us in this room would be asking, where is that arena? Where is that place that Christ is calling me to permeate with the goodness of the gospel, to bring life into situations that are in decay and deteriorating? to bring pizzazz where there is hopelessness, where there is mundaneness, where there's average, and to be a difference maker in the world is our prayer together as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what an encouragement for us all to go out and be effective in our community. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and that's the end of this message, but there's more to come in the series, Salt and Light. Next time, we'll have a message about how we view our belongings or our worldly stuff. Jesus says your attitude towards your stuff is almost a sign of authenticity, that you're the real deal. That by the transformational work of the Spirit of God, the most drastic change that's gonna happen in your life is your relationship to your stuff. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines.
Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.